121 is where I would invite you to turn. Psalm 121, page 440 in our church Bibles. So while you're turning there, let me just remind you that if you have a question or two about what we have sung or said or read this morning, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you when our time together is completed. We had two wonderful questions last week, so um, just keep that in mind. We're going to read God's Word. We have lots to do today, and then we're going to pray and get, get started right away. So let's hear the Word of the Lord, Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together and let's pray as we think about Psalm 121. Guide me, O great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Eternal God and everlasting Father, there is this great sense in me this morning that this psalm, I need to understand. I need to be humbled by it. I need to be sustained in the truth that only because of your grace in Jesus Christ, you are unquestionably my helper. I know, God, this need is true of me. I can't know if it's true of everyone else. But if it is, Father... If it is, then please help us now because our life is passing feverishly through our fingers and and night is coming. Night is coming when no one can work and we'll have to put away every earthly thing. Therefore, in this precious and most important moment that was given to us, may we affirm the fact together that you are the living God, that you are a mighty fortress, that you are worthy of your people gathering week by week to sing and to pray and to listen so that we might honor you, so that we might know that there is no ultimate refuge apart from you, but there is refuge refuge in you. So, Father, please then, by your Spirit, speak to us through your living word, the Bible. In your kindness, God, do what's needed. And we ask all these things in the one who, who suffered and bled and died to take away our sin, Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb of God. Amen. There is a very gifted writer. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. He has been the staff writer for the New Yorker magazine since 1996. And he he has written a clever little book recently called David and Goliath. And the subtitle is this, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Now, it's the subtitle that drew me to purchase the book because I can identify freely with the first two words, uh, uh, Misfits, Underdogs. And I have failed miserably at the last two words, uh, battling giants. However, the book, and the book is good, but as good as I think it is, it's very man-centered. For in the book, the heroes are always mostly humans, and so it's always human power, a dash of luck, a dash of chance, human courage, or cleverness. 
So, so when you get to the point in the book when help is needed, help is, is looked for essentially from within. Every place but the Lord. So the answer to the question in verse 1, do you see it there in your Bible? Where does my help come from? Well, in the book, all but one person would answer it. Well, my help, my help comes from my clever strategy. It comes from my hard work. It, it comes from me not playing by the rules. Or my help comes because I just go with my gut. But the people in the book never thinking or thanking are calling on the God who, who gave them a gut to go with in the first place. Now, this becomes awfully important because last time we were together, we learned that Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are labeled by the subtitle there, and you can see it there, a song of ascents. And we learned that if we didn't understand what the subtitle meant and why it mattered, then we would more than likely make a hash out of either preaching these psalms or understanding these psalms as we made some kind of application of them into our lives. So we needed to know that to the original writers, Psalm 120 through 134, were songs to be sung for the people of God's annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's why they were written. That's why they were sung. So these songs were the, for the pilgrims in progress. But for the New Testament Christian, as they read these psalms, if you would, with their Jesus glasses on, they know that songs or psalms are songs and they're filled with metaphors and symbolism and many of those things are pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament reader reads these psalms and they know that all those rites and all those rituals that were part and partial of the Old Testament covenant, namely a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, all those things were laid to rest when Jesus hung on a cross and died and raised from the dead. Therefore, for the believer's pilgrim's progress, this is not a journey to Jerusalem, as wonderful of a place it might be. No, our pilgrim's progress is the journey to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, to God's heaven. And we said that when we come to these psalms now, then now we have, we have a better mind and we, we have a cross-centered, Christ-centered, redemptive understanding. I was talking to someone last week at the end of the second service and we both said that you could really make a mess out of these psalms if you didn't know what I just said. Okay, so what do these psalms mean to the Old Testament believer? Well, these are songs to be sung about God. They're true to life. They, they take us from the difficulty of this present world, all the messiness of it. They take us to the presence of God, and we sing them as, or they would sing them as they make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2. Do you see it there? I rejoice when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So they've arrived safe and sound in the holy city. But, again, for the New Testament reader, who, who is told in Hebrews 12, keep your eyes on Jesus, the songs here are songs for our journey here. These are songs and prayers for our pilgrimage to heaven, the new Jerusalem, to be with God's people in God's place. Because, because how else are you going to understand properly verse 7a of Psalm 121? Do you see it there? The Lord will keep you from all harm. Because even if you just think practically, we know, for example, Christians who serve in the military, they are harmed and many die. Christian women and children abused, ravaged, starved. Martyrs thrown in prison, hung, shot. Missionary Dr. Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball who contracted the Ebola virus in a field hospital in Liberia. How are they going to understand Psalm 121 verse 7a, the Lord will keep you from all harm. Because the fact remains that surely all of us have been hurt, damaged, impaired, mistreated, wounded, calamity, suffered trouble, adversity, all synonyms of the word harm in verse, 120, verse 7a of 121 Psalm. 
So then you're going to have to think, are these, are these assurances real? And we're missing something? Or is this a lie? So is the Bible bunk? Is Dawkins and Hitchens and Cross or Sam Harris, uh, the author of The End of Faith, who published a book in 2004 that appeared on the New York Times bestsellers list for 33 weeks, The End of Faith? Are these, all, are these gentlemen right? Or maybe it's, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So roll up your sleeves and, and be better. Uh, aren't you glad that it's not true that, that God helps those who help themselves? Because we'd all still be dead in our sins and we'd all still be dead in our trespasses and we'd all still be under God's wrath if God didn't help us do what we could not do on our own. Okay, so maybe then Psalm 121 verse 7a is for, you know, the special people with shiny foreheads and, and you know, they're just so... So darn hip and so smart and so cute and they're so cuddly and they live very conservatively so, so they smartly don't put themselves in harm's way and so God pours out whatever the equivalent of um, uh, lucky charms is over their life because they're so terrific and so sweet and they never say harm. Or, or maybe, maybe some of those high-powered television preachers name it, claim it, say it, grab it. Maybe they're right. And if we do what they say, Psalm 121, verse 7a, then no, no harm will come to us. Now you have been taught well enough to know that is irrational and that's untrue to history and that is untrue to theology. That is unreality. That is unreality. And that is why proper interpretation matters. It matters greatly. Yes, the original writer is asking for help as he makes his way to the holy city in such a messy world. And yes, the New Testament reader cries out with the help of these psalms for God's help to help us make our way to God's heaven. That's how we should use these psalms. Question, will they get there safely? Answer, Psalm 122, verse 2. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Question, will the genuine Christian arrive in God's heaven safely? Psalm 122, verse 2. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So then these 15 psalms that began in Psalm 120, that end in Psalm 134, they come, as we've said last week, in cycles of three. The same re repeated pattern. You can read through this again this morning, this afternoon. Hassle, help, heaven. That's the pattern. Psalm 120, hassle. We talked about that last time. What a, what a hassle it is to live in this world in this messy world that, that opposes God. That's Psalm 120. We don't fit here. You'll be happy to know that, that yesterday my wife and I were working on a project at home and that means I was passing her tools and something happened where I messed up and she said just, and I got clearance to say this, she said to me in a very loving voice, you're not made to live in this world. <laughs> and I stopped and I said, yes, yes, you're right. And I said, can I say that tomorrow because the sermon's not that good. And she says, yes, go ahead and say it. You see, Psalm 120, that's what she said. You're not meant to live in this world. This week, Psalm 121, help. Help, we, we need somebody. Next week, all spare the Lord willing heaven. So that we'll know next week, just as we know, in part this week, so that when the time comes for us to die, we will fall asleep and we will wake up safely in the arms of Jesus in his heaven. So you need to have the rhythm of these psalms to understand them, right? Hassle, help, heaven. Hassle, help, heaven. And the genius of these psalms, I think, is that not only do they help us understand what is being said with some degree of clarity, 
They help us know and they help us say that what a battle the Christian life is now. What, what a battle the properly lived Christian life is now. But also how we should rejoice that our hearts are going to be set perfectly in this pilgrimage to God's heaven. Because we're all going to need these psalms, unfortunately, in our life. When the day of trouble comes, we're going to need these psalms. We may not need them currently, but we will need them eventually. And so we need to pay attention. Which takes us to our first point. Then life is filled with hills. That's verse 1. Do you see it there? Life is filled with hills. Now I suspect when you read these, uh, these verses of the first, or the first verse of Psalm 121, you might have a line of thought like I did that said when you re- read them, there seems to be some kind of yearning for the hills. You know, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? So, so I thought for a time that the psalmist was kind of moonstruck and he was kind of having this kind of romantic longing to see the rolling hills. You know, he's been in the flatlands too long, and he's longing now for the hills. So I lift my eyes up to the hills. It's kind of like a reminiscent wistfulness for home. Off in the distance, the hills. In fact, you've probably read, and I know I've read, those short little promised devotional cards and then they plump verse 120, or Psalm 121, verse 1. They put it on there. And then they have this beautiful picture of the greenest, grassiest hills anyone has ever seen. But, as I studied the psalm this week, I discovered that that is not how that verse is to be understood. I had it completely wrong. Because if you think that he's looking at the hills happily, then you're way, way off. And here's why. When he cries what he cries in verse 1, he's asking for help. When he sees the hills, he sees them as a place of fear and dread and temptation. Because the hills were the place in the ancient world where thieves hid and bandits lay waiting and other evil things lay waiting as well. So do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Luke chapter 10 verse 30. It says, there once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's reverse, but it's still the hill country. And on the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. See, that's what could happen to a pilgrim when they traveled through those hills. And especially a pilgrim as they were making their ascent to the Holy City during that annual pilgrimage because they would be carrying their temple tithe. So they would have 10% of their annual income with them at least that they're going to give to God. And thieves and robbers knew this. So there's no safety. It's just you and them or the group and them. There's no soldiers, guards. There's no rest stops to help you. By the way, in Texas, their rest stops are called safety rest areas. So the hills are scary and life is filled with hills. But it wasn't just thieves that they had to worry about on those hills. The hills were stuffed with pagan shrines. And in some way, when you read through the psalm, it's kind of like a scolding of those pagan shrines because those who served in the shrines would plant trees. Verse 5a, do you see it there? They would plant trees for shade that they would live up under and they would wait for the pilgrims to pass by in order that they could make you know, their false promises. They would have spells and magic. You know, Necromancers would promise them that for a fee they could talk to their dead Aunt Ethel. Okay, but not only that, also in those shrines would be the cultic practice of temple prostitution on the hills. So I wonder if you can imagine, just for a moment, you're on your way to Jerusalem, you have your tithe in your pocket for God, and there's temple prostitutes are waving at you from a distant hill, they're dressed to the nines, 
ready to tell you lies, sweet little lies. Do you know that song from Stevie, Stevie Wonder that has a line, Mama gives you money for Sunday school. You trade yours for candy after church is through. You see, no wonder Jeremiah the preacher cries out, Jeremiah 3.23. This is what makes the Bible so wonderful. Surely the adulterous commotion, you ready? On the hills is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So you have to understand this. The hills are a place of trouble, fear, worries, temptation, and lies. And life is filled with hills. And so the pilgrim looks up to the hills and it draws out of them this concern. So this is, this is not like longing. This is wailing. They swallow their inadequacy. And they say, verse 1b, where does my help come from? I'm looking at the hills. They're nasty. Life is filled with, hill, filled with hills. Where does my help come from? And so this is surely then figurative language for the New Testament believer. Metaphorically, our lives are on a pilgrimage to get to God's heaven. There are menacing hills. And at the same time, the same time, there's so many deviations. Okay? So many deviations that some promise that we could go around the hills that would mislead us. Those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, it's the first thing that popped in my head. In, in the story, there's the Hill of Difficulty. And, and the Hill of Difficulty was very, very steep, very, very high, but it was the only way to the Holy City. There were two deviations. Path number one, path of destruction. Path number two, path of danger. And Christian has two companions, one of whom is named Mistrust. And those two companions determine, you know what? We're going to go around the hill. We'll get to the holy city just fine. But if you read the story, you will know that they never got there. They never got there. We must go through many hardships. We must have many hills of difficulty to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Bible makes it clear then that the believer's life is a pilgrimage. And the Bible is very realistic. And it's honest. And it warns us up front. Our pilgrimage will be filled with hills. So, so we can't be naive about this. I mean, if we honestly need to go up in this, then by God's grace, let, let us grow up. Because all of us are subject to the same strains, the same stresses, the same sorrows, the same common life that everyone has on this planet. And don't think I'll ever tell you anything differently. But then you add to the believer the privileges and responsibilities of being God's people in God's world that often battle those people who battle with His truth then we can say doubly, life is filled with hills. Okay, yeah, not perpetually, but we know this eventually. That's our first point, life is full of hills. I hope it helped. Then our second point, then, is, makes sense. We're all looking for help. That's what the psalmist says. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Holy cow, there's trouble there. I can't help myself. Where does my help come from? So we're all in the same boat. We're looking for the help that we need. And we know that there are many answers offered to that question. I need help. People chase things and they chase static and they chase intellect and they chase fortune. They, they chase some promised God-like abilities so that they can either fly over the hills or go around the hills. So we have to go through this. I mean, so what do people look for for help? Well, people go to their account page. And, and the more zeros and the more commas on their account page, 
the more peace they have. Whew. I'm secure. I'm okay now because I've got lots of zeros and lots of commas in my account page. That's a form of rebellion towards God. Psalm 20, verse 7a, some trust in chariots and, and some trust in horses and some trust in their competence and some trust in their usefulness and some trust in their giftedness and some trust in their persuasiveness and their aggressiveness. But we need to learn and believe Psalm 20, verse 7b, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Okay, but it's not only cash that people seek help from and security from. We know that. Many pe- people seek help from other religions. M- many say, okay, roll up your se- sleeves and deal with it yourself. You know, you, you wimp. Many people seek help in the form of self-help and new philosophies from bookstores that all say, we promise that we can, we can navigate your way through this life to, so that, that you'll never have to encounter hills. We have new maps. We have shortcuts. Drugs. Drink, hobbies, numbness, and distractions to deal with the heels. Thursday night, I, was, I watched 10 minutes of the movie that I've heard about but never seen. It's Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall. And the reason why I watched it, now if it's a horrible movie, I only watched 10 minutes, so I'm off the hook. So I watched 10 minutes of it. The reason why is because I've honestly been praying for Woody, Woody Allen's conversion. I mean, somebody's got to pray for him, right? So I've been praying for him. And so I watched the movie, tried to get a sense of who he was better. And in the scene, Mr. Allen's girlfriend says this. My analyst said that I ought to live in the country to calm my nerves. Now, she's in New York City, and she says, my analyst says I ought to live in the country to calm my nerves. And, and I say that because that's another place we're tempted to turn for the help we need from our hills. So the answer to life's dilemma is a little cottage in the hills. Uh, The answer to life's dilemma is to get away from it all, remoteness. But there's no answer there. Why? Because many people would say, well, you know, that sounds pretty nice. Tell me why there's no real answer there. The reason why there's no answer there is because we take ourselves when we go there. We take ourselves when we go there. People are looking for all kinds of answers from all kinds of places, but for the Christian believer, there's only one place. Only one place place we seek the help that we need and that is where the radical difference lies we accept no substitutes no 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 placebo the believer has one answer and the psalmist gives us that one answer and believe it or not it's our third point don't be alarmed we're not done yet life is full of hills yes we're all looking for help yes Final point, our help comes from the Lord. The psalmist makes it clear, doesn't he? That's verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God made those hills. Our God made those hills. Our God is over the hills. The, the, the psalmist knows that God is the only real helper. That there's one creator God who made the whole of the universe, the whole of the earth. And so that means he's sovereign over it. He rules over everything in the world, even the hills. So all those dangers and toils and snares that we would encounter in this brief life, they're all under the control of God. The God who made the heavens and the God who made the earth. He rules over them. As we say often, it may not seem so, but it is so, and it will be revealed as so when life on earth is all zipped up. Now we need a catechism question to help us. Question number 27, Heidelberg Catechism. What do you mean by the providence or the sovereignty of God? Answer. 
the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And if you don't believe this, find a better way. Tell me a better answer to understand life. John Newton understood this. Second, third verse, amazing grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So God is sovereign over the hills. He's sovereign over the affairs of men and women. But, and here's the key, the main attribute that the psalmist wants to, to drive into the heart, into the head of the reader, is that God, the creator of the hills, watches over us. us. Look at your Bible, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. Six times, the same Hebrew word. This is like a good song that repeats that, you know, same phrase over and over and over again. Shema is the Hebrew word. God watches over his people. God cares for his people. God has charge over his people. God is responsible for his people. God guards his people. God keeps his people. God remains with his people. That's the sense of the world. Word. So do you see it there in your Bible? Look at verse 3. He watches over you. Your foot won't slip for your God never sleeps. That's my paraphrase of verse 3. Foot won't slip because God never sleeps. God is always watching, always caring, always listening. And He is your God. Verse 4. He watches over you. Indeed, you better believe He doesn't sleep. That's again a loose paraphrase. But this is the tireless attention of God, of the God who made everything applied to to the believer. Verse 5, he watches over you. He's your sh shade. Remember the pagan temples? They would plant their trees on the hills for shade. But as you think about that, that would depend on the time of the year and the time of the day for any shade, all temporal, all circumstantial. And you, you know, that's not help. But God watches over us. In other words, this is the ceaseless care of God. If I was taking notes, that's what I'd write down. The ceaseless care of God. The ceaseless, ceaseless guidance of God. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this. And I sure hope this helps. We know that our own ceaseless folly and our own ceaseless foolishness will never then be able to derail us on our pilgrimage to God's heaven if God is our God. So we have to admit, as pilgrims in progress to God's heaven, we, we oftentimes make foolish choices. We put our foot in the wrong place. At least I do. We may slip. We, we may get weary. We may fall down. But God says, verse 3, I won't sleep so you won't slip. I won't sleep so you won't slip. Which means we can never be outside God's fatherly guidance. Never. Well, why is that true? Because the psalmist is saying over and over again, God watches over his people. So, so think of that, those of us who are always locked up to think that every time, every time we better get it exactly right or everything just crumbles. I mean, let this psalm cheer you up, help you out, calm you down. God won't let you sleep. Besides, we're not that good. We're not going to get everything right anyway. And shame on you if you think you will. Now, yeah, someone might turn against God's command and they might rebel against God purposely, but that is a different thing for another time. What's happening here in Psalm 121 is not that. 
So as you think about those things, can't you see how this would liberate the believer to have such confidence in God that, that we now can really bear real fruit for God and no, no longer living like we're walking on eggshells and everything depends on us? Because in a very real sense, as you think about this, we're walking on sunshine. We're no longer paralyzed, waiting for some special guidance and special voice or some special whatever, but we just simply walk obeying God's revealed will, believing on his constant promises, one of which is that as Christians, Christians are in constant covenant relationship with God. And therefore, because that's true, God has ceaseless guidance and care over his people. Even when we mess up, oh, you better believe even when we mess up. John Piper, in his writings, when he would write about the reform, reformers, reformation, he would use this phrase over and over again, the intimate providence of God. The intimate providence of God because the reformers would think that every moment God was caring and that over every moment God was overseeing and that he would never let their feet slip so they could change the world for Christ. Not locked up always in fear. There's a missionary, John G. Patton. He has this classic line because he, he was a missionary to cannibals. This is what he said. I felt immortal until my work on earth was done. It's fantastic. I felt immortal until my work on earth was done. What was he saying? God watches over me. God watches over me. So, so the fear we have, whether it's real or imagined, can often take, take us to a place where we're so cautious at best, but at worst, we make decisions in our life as if our safety depended only on us. That is creepy. That is wrong. And that is restraining where does my help come from? Answer, it comes from the Lord. Okay, so then the skeptic has to speak up, right? Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited him, the party pooper. What about verse 7? The Lord will keep you. The same Hebrew word, shamar. The Lord will watch over you, keep, keep over you uh, from all harm. Okay, so what are we to make of that? Because we can't just skip it. Well, listen to Alistair Begg. To be kept from all harm clearly is not some kind of blanket, blanket guarantee of a cushioned existence through life. But it is a reminder of the fact that God keeps his people on the path of righteousness, that he will not allow us to slip off the path. He will show us the path of life, that he will complete the pilgrimage that we've begun. And this is where Alistair ends and I begin. But that God actually started... When he called us out of darkness, therefore we arrive safely and justified into his heaven. Why? Our help comes from the Lord. So think of it this way. Verses 3 and 4, the Lord is ceaseless in his care. Verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, God is liberating in his care. We don't live so locked up. We have no false helps. Verse 7, God is perpetual in his care. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. There's no falling asleep on the chair 8.30 on a Friday night. That's, that's me. That's not God. There's no plan B here. That's verse 7. Okay, then what about verse 6? The sun and the moon won't harm us. Now, you, you're wise enough to understand the, the harm the sun can cause, but what about the moon? It's a little weird, isn't it? Well, the word lunar is a Latin word for the word moon. And the ancient world thought that, that um, the moon had certain effects on the mind. We, we get our word lunatic from lunar. So the mind could be messed up by the moon. 
and probably not says science, because even some scientists think that that could happen. Probably not says science, but definitely not says the psalmist for God's people. Because even the elements won't, won't keep us from having God's help in our pilgrim's progress. Okay, then what about the big one, verse 8? What about death? You see it there, he, God watches over our coming and our going. That's a Jewish euphemism for our entrance into this world and our exit out of the world. So, so think for a moment, this is so precious. God, God was with us. He was watching over us in the delivery room. I mean, think about that for just a moment. He, he's there in the room with all the other people watching us, caring for us. And then whatever our death will look like, on a bed, in a place, in a car, whatever, he'll be there watching over us. So let me close with a story that, that I discovered this week. It's a true story. So there, there's this man, he was a, a Christian patient, and the doctor tells the story of his patient. His Christian patient had a very, very serious type of blood cancer, which, which could only be treated with a bone marrow transplant. And so apparently what happened is, happens is that you remove some bone marrow from the person's body, and then you store it in a freezing unit, and in the meantime, you, you just blast the patient's body with, with strong chemotherapy. You destroy blood cells. You destroy the marrow that remains in the body, hoping that you'll kill every bit of the cancer cells that are there. So then you bring out the marrow out of the freezing unit into the body with the hope that the bone marrow would, would colonate in the body. But in this Christian man's case, something horrible happened. Somehow the freezing unit was unplugged. And all the man's, the Christian man's bone marrow was just lost. So his body was utterly defenseless, no marrow, no infection fighting in his system. And it's a death sentence. And so the hospital becomes aware of this, and you know how litigation goes. They're in complete panic. They knew they were guilty of malpractice, but this man was a Christian. So the doctor said that the Christian man called the key staff people of the hospital into his room. They're all bedside. And this is what he says. I'm a Christian. My life is in God's hand. My life is in the hands of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 2. I, I trust myself to him, and I'm, not, and I'm now going to be with him. So I'm not going to sue you, and I don't want any money from you. I just want you to know that. Now, can you imagine the effect that that would have had, surely, on some of the staff? I mean, sure, there'd be some wise guy going, we're not going to get sued. I get that. But can you imagine that effect that would have on at least some of the staff? Because the man knew that not even death itself can harm him and harm you if... God is your God. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over you who are coming and going both now and forever. Forever. Now, if you're thinking, and I hope you're thinking, right smack in the middle of the Old Testament is the resurrection hope and the certainty of God's people getting safely to God's heaven. Right smack in the middle of the Old Testament then is Jesus. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I'm watching over you. And yes, many things will afflict us. But nothing of ultimate harm will overcome us. So I have two questions. They're real simple. Number one, where does your help come from? I'm going to help you with the answer. 
There's only one lasting answer. The God who made heaven and earth is our life and our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question, have you come to Jesus? Not your way, His way. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But, be of good cheer. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Lots of good things to think about, I think. The reason why I said in my prayer that I needed this psalm is because I don't think that I always believe Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. And I want to. In fact, I need to. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. So, so what are you facing now? Your eyes are closed. What are you fearing now? Illness, nighttime fears, fears for kids, family, loneliness, persecutions, job. What is it? Where is, where is the help? Where are the hills? Remember verses 3 through 8. He watches over you. He, he's not going to let your foot slip. He never sleeps. He, he's not going to let you be harmed. He's going to usher you safely into his heaven. Adoption, glorification, those words matter to our God. He is a covenant-keeping God. These are our assurances. So, Father, we would ask for Jesus' sake that Psalm 121, for those of us who need it, will become more real, that we will not, God, we will not fall prey to, to, to clever substitutes that give us a minute or a moment of help but are not eternal. We want the best. We need the best. There's only one refuge, and it is in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the grace of God and, and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace and power of the Holy Spirit be, now, be ours now, forever and ever. Amen.